friends, welcome back to Bitching About the Cameron. We're now up to the fifth story on the fourth day, and our theme is a love that ended unhappily. So we've already had a few tragedies, let's see where our next story takes us. When Alyssa's story came to an end, the king bestowed a few words of praise upon it, and then called upon Philomena to speak next. Being quite overcome with compassion for the hapless Gerbino and his lady love, she fetched a deep sigh, then began as follows. This story of mine, fair ladies, will not be about people of so lofty a rank as those of whom Alyssa has been speaking, but possibly it will prove to be no less touching, and I was reminded of it by the mention that has just been made of Messina, which is where it all happened. In Messina there once lived three brothers, all of them merchants who had been left very rich after the death of their father, whose native town was San Gimignano. They had a sister called Lisabetta, but for some reason or other they had failed to bestow her in marriage, despite the fact that she was uncommonly gracious and beautiful. In one of their trading establishments, the three brothers employed a young Pisan named Lorenzo, who planned and directed all their operations, and who, being rather dashing and handsomely proportioned, had often attracted the gaze of Lisabetta. Having noticed more than once that she had grown exceedingly fond of him, Lorenzo abandoned all his other amours and began in like fashion to set his own heart on winning Lisabetta. And since they were equally in love with each other, before very long they gratified their dearest wishes, taking care not to be discovered. In this way their love continued to prosper, much to their common enjoyment and pleasure. They did everything they could to keep the affair a secret, but one night, as Lisabetta was making her way to Lorenzo's sleeping quarters, she was observed, without knowing it, by her eldest brother. The discovery greatly distressed him, being a young man of some intelligence, not wishing to do anything that would bring discredit upon his family. He neither spoke nor made a move, but spent the whole of the night applying his mind to various sides of the matter. Next morning he described to his brothers what he had seen of Lisabetta and Lorenzo the night before, and the three of them talked the thing over at considerable length. Being determined that the affair should leave no stain upon the reputation either of themselves or of their sister, he decided that they must pass it over in silence, and pretend to have neither seen nor heard anything, until such time as it was safe and convenient for them to rid themselves of this ignominy before it got out of hand. Abiding by this decision, the three brothers jested and chatted with Lorenzo in their usual manner, until one day they pretended they were all going off on a pleasure trip to the country, and took Lorenzo with him. They bided their time, and on reaching a very remote and lonely spot, they took Lorenzo off his guard, murdered him, and buried his corpse. No one had witnessed the deed, and on their return to Messina they put it about that they had sent Lorenzo away on a trading assignment, being all the more readily believed as they had done this so often before. Lorenzo's continued absence weighed heavily upon Lisabetta, who kept asking her brothers in anxious tones what had become of him, and eventually her questioning became so persistent that one of her brothers rounded on her and said, What is the meaning of this? What business do you have with Lorenzo that you should be asking so many questions about him? If you go on pestering us, we shall give you the answer you deserve. From then on, the young woman, who was sad and miserable and full of strange forebodings, refrained from asking questions. But at night she would repeatedly utter his name in a heart-rending voice, and beseech him to come to her. 
and from time to time she would burst into tears because of his failure to return. Nothing would restore her spirits. Meanwhile, she simply went on waiting. One night, however, after crying so much over Lorenzo's absence that she eventually cried herself to sleep, he appeared to her in a dream, pallid-looking and all dishevelled, his clothes tattered and decaying, and it seemed to her that he said, Ah, Lisabetta, you do nothing but call to me and bemoan my long absence, and you cruelly reprove me with your tears. Hence I must tell you that I can never return, because on the day that you saw me for the last time, I was murdered by your brothers. He then described the place where they had buried him, told her not to call to him or wait for him any longer, and disappeared. Having woken up, believing that what she had seen was true, the young woman wept bitterly, and when she arose next morning, she resolved to go to the place and seek confirmation of what she had seen in her sleep. She dared not mention the apparition to her brothers, but obtained their permission to make a brief trip to the country for pleasure taking with her a maidservant who had once acted as her go-between and was privy to all her affairs. She immediately set out, and on reaching the spot swept aside some dead leaves and started to excavate a section of the ground that appeared to have been disturbed. Nor did she have to dig very deep before she uncovered her poor lover's body, which, showing no sign as yet of decomposition or decay, proved all too clearly that her vision had been true. Historical side note the significance of a body that shows no sign of decomposition or decay after some period. This is one of the standard miracle types, I guess. It's quite common for saints' bodies to have been, you know, someone was believed to be a saint and they died and people kept praying to them and good things happened and they decided to move the body to somewhere more accessible and when they unearth the body, they find that miraculously it hasn't decomposed or decayed. That's really common as a, as a, as a narrative. So when Lisabetta finds Lorenzo's body in this state, it's a sign of... It doesn't imply that he's a saint, but there is definitely an element of... It's divinely sanctioned, I guess, that she should have been able to find him and identify him that this is, and this is linking up with the dream that she had, which, again, such dreams are not exactly sent by God, but both of these things together imply that uh, Lorenzo shouldn't have to have died, that the brothers who killed him were in the wrong, and that Lisabetta and Lorenzo, their love is, is narratively good. It's a moral good within this story. She was the saddest woman alive, but knowing that this was no time for weeping, and seeing that it was impossible for her to take away his whole body as she would dearly have wished, she laid it to rest in a more appropriate spot, then severed the head from the shoulders as best she could and enveloped it in a towel. This she handed into her maidservant's keeping while she covered over the remainder of the corpse with soil, and then they returned home, having completed the whole of their task unobserved. Taking the head to her room, she locked herself in and cried bitterly, weeping so profusely that she saturated it with her tears, at the same time implanting a thousand kisses on it. Then she wrapped the head in a piece of rich cloth and laid it in a large and elegant pot, of the sort in which basil or marjoram is grown. She next covered it with soil, in which she planted several sprigs of the finest Salonitan basil, and never watered them except with essence of roses or orange blossom, or with her own teardrops. 
So her treatment of um, Lorenzo's body here is again like the treatment of a saint. She has taken a relic, in this case his head, and will set aside the fact that to modernise this is quite, you know, it's a quite an unpleasant picture for us. It's not, it, it hasn't got that sentimental aspect, but what she's doing here is she has taken part of his body as a representative of the whole and is, in wrapping it in rich cloth, part of what you did with the saint's relic was you put it in a rich container that reflected both the richness of heaven and also the the value and the importance of the relic. And so and she's treating it in that way. She's caring for the the basil and then by extension the relic with luxury materials with essence of roses, essence of orange blossom and with outpourings of emotion. This was a period where affective so very emotional religion was was kind of a thing, particularly for women. The idea was that, you know, it was a woman who was particularly religious and devout might might weep for Christ's sufferings, uh, might feel it painfully themselves. And so this idea of, of these copious tears is paralleling that kind of religious devotion. This is a sign that her love is is a very pure kind of love. She took to sitting permanently beside this pot and gazing lovingly at it, concentrating the whole of her desire upon it because it was where her beloved Lorenzo lay concealed. And after gazing raptly for a long while upon it, she would bend over it and begin to cry, and her weeping never ceased until the whole of the basil was wet with her tears because of the long and unceasing care that was lavished upon it, and also because the soil was enriched by the decomposing head inside the pot. God, that's charming. The basil grew very thick and exceedingly fragrant. The young woman constantly followed this same routine, and from time to time she attracted the attention of her neighbours. And as they had heard her brothers expressing their concern at the decline of her good looks, and the way in which her eyes appeared to have been sunk in their sockets, they told them what they had seen, adding... We have noticed that she follows the same routine every day. The brothers discovered for themselves that this was so, and having reproached her once or twice without the slightest effect, they caused the pot to be secretly removed from her room. When she found that it was missing, she kept asking for it over and over again, and because they would not restore it to her, she sobbed and cried without a pause until eventually she fell seriously ill, and from her bed of sickness she would call for nothing else except her pot of basil. The young men were astonished by the persistence of her entreaties, and decided to examine its contents. Having shaken out the soil, they saw the cloth and found the decomposing head inside it, still sufficiently intact for them to recognise it as Lorenzo's from the curls of his hair. This discovery greatly amazed them, and they were afraid lest people should come to know what had happened. So they buried the head, and without breathing a word to anyone, having wound up their affairs in Messina, they left the city and went to live in Naples. The girl went on weeping and demanding her pot of basil until eventually she cried herself to death, thus bringing her ill-fated love to an end. But after due process of time, many people came to know of the affair, and one of them composed a song which can still be heard to this day. Whoever it was, whoever the villain that stole my pot of herbs, etc. The story related by Philomena was much appreciated by the ladies, for they had heard this song on a number of occasions without ever succeeding, for all their inquiries, in discovering why it had been written. It was now Panfilo's turn, 
and as soon as the king had heard the concluding words of the previous tale, he instructed him to proceed. Panfilo therefore began. The dream referred to in the last story offers me a pretext for narrating a tale in which two dreams are mentioned, both of them relating to a future event as distinct from something, as in Lisabetta's case, that had already taken place. Moreover, no sooner were they described by the people who had experienced them than both dreams came true. For the fact is, dear ladies, that every living being suffers from the common affliction of seeing various things in his sleep, and although whilst he is asleep they all seem absolutely real, and after waking up he judges some to be real, others possible, and a portion of them totally incredible, nevertheless you will find that many of them come true in the end. This explains why a lot of people have just as much faith in their dreams as they would have in the things they see when they are wide awake, and why their dreams are sufficient of themselves to make them cheerful if they have seen something encouraging, or sorrowful if they have been frightened. At the other extreme, there are those who refuse to believe in dreams until they discover that they have fallen into the very predicament of which they were forewarned. In my opinion, neither of these attitudes is commendable, because dreams are neither true every time, nor always false. That they are not all true, each of us has frequently had occasion to discover. That they are not all false has been demonstrated a little while ago in Philomena's story, and, as I said earlier, I intend to show it in my own. For I maintain that if one conducts one's life virtuously, there is no reason to be afraid of any dream that encourages one to behave differently, or to abandon one's good intentions because of it. And if one harbours perverse and wicked intentions, however much one's dreams appear favourable to these and encourage one to pursue them by presenting auspicious omens, none of them should be believed, whilst full credence should be given to those which predict the opposite. Let us turn now to the story. In the city of Brescia, there once lived a nobleman called Messer Negro de Pontecararo. He had several children, including a daughter whose name was Andreola. Although she was an exceedingly beautiful young woman, she was as yet unmarried. Andreola chanced to fall in love with a neighbour of hers called Gabriotto, a man of low estate but full of admirable qualities, as well as being handsome and pleasing in appearance. Aided and abetted by her maidservant, the girl not only succeeded in apprising Gabriotto of her love, but had him conveyed regularly into a beautiful garden in the grounds of her father's house, to the mutual joy of the two parties concerned. And so that this delectable love of theirs should never be torn asunder save by the hand of death, they secretly became husband and wife. They continued to make love by this furtive means until one night, as she lay asleep, the girl had a dream in which she seemed to see herself in the garden with Gabriotto giving and getting intense pleasure as she held him in her arms. And whilst they were thus occupied, she seemed to see a dark and terrible thing issuing from his body, the form of which she could not make out. The thing appeared to take hold of Gabriotto, and by exerting some miraculous force to tear him away from her despite all she could do to prevent it. It then vanished below ground, taking him with it, and they never set eyes upon one another again. Her sorrow was so intense that it woke her up, and although, now that she was awake, she felt relieved that she had merely been imagining all this, she was nevertheless filled with terror because of the dreadful things she had dreamt about. And for this reason, knowing that Gabriotto was anxious to visit her that evening, she did everything in her power to ensure that he stayed away. The following night, however, seeing that he was determined to come, she received him in the garden as usual. The roses were in flower, and she plucked a large number, some red and others white before going to join him at the edge of a magnificent, crystal-clear fountain situated in the garden. 
There they disported themselves merrily together for a long while, and afterwards Gabriotto asked her why she had forbidden him to come on the previous evening, whereupon the girl explained to him about the dream she had experienced during the night before, and told him about the forebodings it had aroused in her. On hearing her explanation, Gabriotto burst out laughing, and told her that it was very silly to take any notice of dreams, since they were caused either by overeating or undereating, and they invariably turned out to be meaningless. Then he said, If I were the sort of person who takes dreams seriously, I would not have come to see you, not so much because of your own dream, but because of one that I too experienced on the night before last. In it I seemed to be out hunting in a fine and pleasant wood, and I captured the most beautiful and fetching little doe you ever saw. It was whiter than the driven snow, and it quickly grew so attached to me that it followed me about everywhere. For my part, I was apparently so fond of the animal that I put a golden collar round its neck, and kept it on a golden chain to prevent it from straying. But then I dreamt that, whilst the doe was asleep, resting its head upon my chest, a coal-black greyhound appeared as if from nowhere, starving with hunger and quite terrifying to look upon. It advanced towards me, and I seemed powerless to resist, for it sank its teeth into my left side, and gnawed away until it reached my heart, which it appeared to tear out and carry off in its jaws. The pain of it was so excruciating that I came to my senses, and the first thing I did on waking up was to run my hand over my left side just to make sure that it was still intact. But on discovering that I had come to no harm, I laughed at myself for being so credulous. But in any case, what does it signify? I have had the same kind of dream before, and much more terrifying ones, and they have never affected my life in the slightest degree, either one way or the other. So let's forget all about them, and concentrate on enjoying ourselves. I've got to say, uh, Gabriotto, that's really not a reassuring thing. Yeah, I dreamed that, like, I had this gorgeous doe, and then I let, we were lying down and just chilling, and then a dog came and ate my fucking heart out of my chest. Like, did you expect that to make her feel better? If the girl was already feeling frightened on account of her own dream, her fears were magnified on learning about Gabriotto's. She did her best to conceal them, however, for she did not wish to upset him. Although she took some solace in returning his kisses and caresses, she was filled with mysterious forebodings, and kept looking into his face more often than usual. And every so often she cast her eyes round the garden to make sure that there was no sign of any black thing approaching. As they lingered there together, Gabriotto suddenly heaved a tremendous sigh, enfolded her in his arms, and said, Alas, my dearest, comfort me, for I am dying. And so saying, he fell back to the ground and lay motionless on the grass. Okay, cool. That just happened. Sure. On seeing this, the girl drew her fallen lover to her bosom, and choking back her tears with an effort, she exclaimed, Oh, my precious husband! Alas! What is the matter? Gabriotto did not reply, but simply lay there gasping for breath and perspiring all over and shortly thereafter he gave up the ghost. I do wonder sometimes how many of these expressions are due to the translator and are, uh, and how many of them are reflecting an actual expression from the time. You can all imagine the girl's distress and agony, for she loved him more dearly than her very self. Bursting into floods of tears, she called out to him over and over again, but all to no avail, and eventually, having run her fingers over the whole of his body and discovered that he was completely cold, she was forced to acknowledge that he was dead. 
stricken with anguish, not knowing what to do or say, her tears streaming down her cheeks, she ran to fetch her maidservant, knew all about her affair with Gabriotto, and poured out all the sorrow and misery she was feeling. The two women wept for some time, gazing down together upon Gabriotto's lifeless features, and then the girl said to her maidservant, Now that God has taken this man away from me, I shall live no longer. But before I proceed to kill myself, I want us to do all things necessary to preserve my good name, to keep our love a secret, and to ensure that his body, from which his noble spirit has departed, will receive a proper burial. Do not talk of killing yourself, my daughter, said the maidservant, for though you may have lost him in this life, if you kill yourself you will lose him in the next life as well, because you will end up in hell, which is the last place I would expect to find the soul of so virtuous a youth as Gabriotto. It is far better that you should be of good cheer, and give some thought to assisting his soul by means of prayers and other good works, just in case he needs them on account of some peccadillo he may have committed. As to burying his body, the quickest way would be to do it here and now in the garden. Nobody will ever find out, because nobody knows that he was ever here. But if you do not like this idea, let us carry him from the garden and leave him outside, where he will be found in the morning and taken to his own house to be buried by his kinsfolk. Though she was filled with despair and wept the whole time, the girl was not deaf to her maidservant's advice. Rejecting the first of her suggestions, she seized upon the second, saying, I am sure that God would not wish me to permit so precious a youth, a man whom I love so deeply and to whom I am married, to be buried like a dog or left lying in the street. I have given him my own tears, and I am determined that he shall have the tears of his kinsfolk. What is more, I am beginning to see how we can manage it. She promptly sent the maid to fetch a length of silk cloth which was kept in one of her strong boxes and when she returned with it they spread it on the ground, and placed Gabriotto's body upon it. Then, weeping continuously, she rested his head on a cushion, closed his lips and his eyelids, made him a wreath out of roses, and filled all the space around him with the other roses they had gathered. And turning to her maid-servant, she said, It is not far from here to his house, so you and I are going to carry him to his front door, and leave him there, just as we have arranged him. Soon it will be day, and they will take him indoors. It won't be any consolation to his family, but for me, at least, in whose arms he has died, it will bring some small pleasure. And so saying, she threw herself upon him once again, her tears streaming freely down her cheeks. She lay there sobbing for a long while, until eventually, heeding her maidservant's repeated and anxious reminders that the dawn was approaching, she dragged herself to her feet. Then, removing from her finger the ring with which Gabriotto had married her, she threaded it onto his, saying through her tears, Dear husband, if your spirit is a witness to my tears, and if there is any consciousness or feeling left in the human body after its soul has departed, receive fondly this final gift from the woman you loved so greatly when you were living on this earth. No sooner had she said this than she swooned and fell yet again upon his body. After a while she came to her senses and stood up. I feel really sorry for the maidservant here. Like, she was not prepared for this level of crisis in the middle of the night. It must be like 3am. Then she and the maidservant took up the piece of cloth upon which his body was lying, went forth from the garden, and proceeded in the direction of his house. But as they were making their way along the street with his dead body, they had the misfortune to be discovered and stopped by the officers of the watch, who had happened at that precise moment to be passing through the district on their way to investigate some other mishap. After what had happened, Andreola was more eager to die than to go on living, and on recognising the officers of the watch, she addressed them frankly and said, I know who you are, 
and realised that it would be futile for me to try and escape. I am quite prepared to come with you and explain all this before the magistrates. But if any of you should venture to lay a finger on me, or to remove anything from this man's body, you may rest assured that I shall denounce you. And so no hand was laid upon her, and she was led away with Gabriotto's body to the place of the Podesta. The Podesta, in other words, the chief magistrate, having been roused from sleep, ordered her to be brought to his private quarters, where he questioned her about the circumstances of the case. He then got certain physicians to carry out a post-mortem, so as to ascertain that the good man had not been murdered, whether by poison or by any other means, and they unanimously confirmed that he had died a natural death from asphyxia, caused by the bursting of an abscess located in the region of his heart. Feeling that the girl was not entirely blameless, despite the physician's report, the magistrate made a pretense of offering her a favour that was not within his power to bestow, telling her that if she would yield to his pleasures, he would set her at liberty. And, uh, then he pressed the issue, and Andreola, uh, defended herself vigorously and hurled him aside with a torrent of haughty abuse. When it was broad day, the affair was reported to Messer Negro, who, sick with anxiety, set out with numerous friends for the palace of the Podesta, where having heard the whole story from the lips of the chief magistrate himself, he protested about the seizure of his daughter and demanded her release. The chief magistrate, thinking it preferable to make a clean breast of his attempt on the girl rather than to wait for her to denounce him, began by praising her for her constancy, in proof of which he went on to describe how he had behaved towards her. On discovering how resolute she was, he had fallen deeply in love with her. My God, you're gross. Fuck you. And if it was agreeable to Master Negro, who was her father, and also to the young lady herself, he would gladly take her for his wife, notwithstanding the fact that she had previously been married to a man of lowly condition. Yeah, sure, like it's going to be agreeable to Andrewola. Whilst they were talking in this fashion, Andrewola came into her father's presence and, bursting into tears, threw herself on her knees before him. Father, she cried, I suppose it is quite unnecessary for me to tell you about my reckless behaviour and about the tragedy that has befallen me, for I am sure you will already have been informed about these things. My sole request, and it is one that I make in all humility, is that you should pardon my transgression in taking as my husband, and without your knowledge, the man who was more pleasing to me than any other. Nor do I crave this forgiveness in order that my life shall be spared, but so that I may die as your daughter and not as your enemy. She thereupon collapsed in tears at his feet, and Messer Negro too began to cry, for he was by nature generous and affectionate, and he was getting on in years. And so, with tears in his eyes, he helped her tenderly to her feet, saying, My daughter, it was always my dearest wish that you should marry a man whom I considered worthy of you, and if you did indeed choose such a man, and he was pleasing to you, then I could have wished for nothing better. All the same, I am saddened to think that you did not trust me sufficiently to tell me about him, the more so on discovering that you have lost him even before I had any inkling of the matter. But still, since this is the way of it, I intend that he should be paid the same respect now that he is dead that I would willingly have paid to him for your sake if he were still alive. In other words, I intend to honour him as my son-in-law. And turning to his sons and kinsfolk, he instructed them to see that a suitably splendid and honourable arrangements were put in hand for Gabriotto's funeral. News of what had happened had meanwhile reached the ears of the young man's kinsfolk, who had now arrived upon the scene together with nearly all the men and women of the city. 
The body was therefore laid upon Andreola's piece of silk cloth in the midst of all her roses, and placed in the centre of the courtyard, where it publicly received the tears not only of Andreola and of Gabriotto's kinswomen, but of nearly all the women in the city, and many of the men. And it was from the palace yard, in the style not of a plebeian, but of a patrician, that his remains were taken with very great reverence to their burial, borne on the shoulders of the highest nobles in the land. After the funeral, the chief magistrate repeated his offer, and Messer Negro talked the matter over with his daughter, but she would have nothing to do with it. And within the space of a few days, it being her father's will that her own wishes should be scrupulously observed in this respect, she and her maidservant entered a convent of great renown for its sanctity, where they thenceforth lived long and virtuous lives as nuns. Apart from the gross magistrate, that's not a terrible ending. Bitching About the Decameron is created by Gwen David and produced by Amanda Martell. Take care, and thanks for listening.